Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the process of monitoring remote viewing clairvoyant sessions. My guest is Lori Williams, one of the world's foremost trainers of remote viewing. She is the founder and president of Intuitive Specialists. She is also the author of Monitoring, a guide for remote viewing and practical intuitive teams. She has also written Boundless, your how-to guide for practical remote viewing. Welcome, Lori. Jeff, thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure to uh, be with you again. And since you live not far from us in Albuquerque, you're here in New Mexico, I hope that you'll come back many times. I love being here, Jim, and I really enjoy me having lunch with you and Janelle. <laughs> well, it, it's our great pleasure to have you among our friends. So, uh, friend and interviewee <laughs> at, at the same time. And You know, the interesting thing about you and Jim, your husband Jim, as, as, uh, with regard to our subject today of monitoring is that Jim is an expert monitor. He and, is. And the two of you have worked together. So you have, uh, both an intimate relationship and a professional relationship. We do. Jim, you, you know, they, they say if you, <laughs> this, this probably isn't cool now in the days of the U2 movement or the Me Too movement, but they say if you want to, uh, have a spouse, you, you marry them young and raise them the way you want them to be. <laughs> <laughs> In a way, that's how Jim and I came to be together because he had never heard of remote viewing when he first met me. And so I was training to be a trainer at the time and when we first met. And so I was able to train him how to monitor me. And he has become a world-class monitor. Um, he's even been flown to different locations to monitor not only me, but other people like Mel Riley. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, because I'm of the impression that in the remote viewing process, everybody is important. And I think the monitor uh, can be uh, and often is more important, actually, than the viewer. Yes. And, you know, it's really actually more difficult to train a monitor than it is to train someone to remote view. Um, monitoring is a very important role in the, mon in the remote viewing process. And a monitor can truly make or break a session. And uh, I know in my own case, the very first time I did remote viewing, uh, Russell Targ served as, as my monitor. And I was, um, uh, you know, naive at, 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 at the time, identifying things that, and Russell right away saw that I was, uh, doing what we now call analytical overlay. <laughs> so he, he was able to redirect me immediately. Yes. And so having someone who's very skilled at, at guiding the viewer without leading the viewer, mm -hmm. that's the key. Yeah. Maybe we should begin by defining uh, who, what the monitor is in, in the remote viewing process well, for viewers who may be unfamiliar. You know, um, Edgar Casey had his secretary who took notes and recorded everything he did. And without her, we wouldn't have a record of what Edgar Casey did. You know, all back, all those years ago. Um, many, many famous influencers, psychics, and seers have had 
someone, that, that person that held them up, that recorded everything that they came out with. And that leaves it for perpetuity. Well, nowadays, of course, we have recording machines. So a monitor's job is far more than just recording something. The monitor's job is to take care of the viewer. That's really the basic thing is a monitor is a person who helps and assists the psychic, the viewer, the intuitive mm-hmm. in uh, getting the information that's needed. Now, the monitor's job is not to have the viewer get the target or be more accurate or anything. But the bottom line is the viewer needs help in some ways. Uh, maybe it's just making sure the viewer's staying hydrated or takes enough breaks or isn't getting too sucked into the target or isn't experiencing anything psychologically damaging. Mm-hmm. That Those points alone would make a good reason for having a monitor. But additionally, when there's information that's very specific that's needed and a life is at stake, the monitor's job is to make sure that the viewer doesn't go off picking daisies somewhere else and, and actually gets the information that's Hel- needed. Helps to maintain the focus. Yes. And um, sometimes it's about creating a safe space. That's so true, yes. It's very much about creating a space, safe place. I love when Jim monitors me because I do feel safe. I just feel safe. I know he's there. Um, once I was doing uh, a, an operational target, and it was a plane crash. And my job as the viewer was to describe the actual cause of the plane crash. So you knew it was a plane crash. Um, I knew, yes. I knew that there was a plane crash involved. I didn't know. I thought it was like a little two-engine, two-seater type plane. It was actually a commercial plane. And it happened in the 50s. I didn't, so all I was told was that the target's event described the target, but I had heard that there was a plane involved. So um, I was describing this, and one of the things, there was a lot of known information. The taskers, the people who needed the information, or the customers, what they needed to know was what caused it. And there was suspicion that sabotage could have been involved. Um, I didn't know any of this, of course, viewing while I was viewing. But they, number one, they wanted to know if it was sabotage or a mechanical failure. And th- that was really the bottom line of the question. But one thing they did know was that there had been survivors when it crashed into the ocean and that sharks attacked and killed the survivors which is a pretty horrific thing. But the the customers knew that. That was known information. So while I was viewing, at one point, that's what I ran into. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in my mind's eye, I was seeing tigers attacking people in my mind's eye. And of course, we've been taught, you set aside the nouns. Our job is to describe, not to identify. So I wrote tigers attacking people and set that aside on the right side of my page. And then I extrapolated what I was actually perceiving, like, I was hearing the sound of flesh tearing. I was seeing blood. You know, it was gruesome. But I was just reporting what I was seeing. And Jim, my monitor, who automatically knew what I was seeing, he said, that's known information. Thank you very much. Now, would you like to move to the man-made and describe? So I had already mentioned that there was a man-made object there. And he knew that moving me to the man-made would be a safer thing than having me view something that was unneeded and could even be psychologically harmful. So he immediately, as a good monitor, just thanked me for getting the information and said that is known information, which is a confidence booster in the sense that the viewer goes, oh, I'm, I just gave information that's accurate. It, it may be known and not needed, but at least I know I'm accurate. Mm-hmm. And then he's moving me away from it to something benign. So I 
Presumed because Jim knew that this was known information, that he wasn't blind to the target. No, he was not blind to the target. He Nowadays, back in the olden days of the remote mm-hmm. viewing unit, they had a whole army of people that they could draw from. They had a director, a project manager, an analyst, a viewer, a monitor. They had entire teams of people on one project. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we're not as blessed that way usually, and so the project manager often has to wear many hats. So in our company, Jim often has to wear both hats of being being the project manager, the one who acts as a liaison and an intermediary between the viewer and the customer so that the viewer never has to meet the customer, the customer never has to meet the viewer, and the the viewer knows as little as possible. So the project manager's job is to act, the project manager's job is to act as a liaison between the customer who needs information and the viewer who's there to get the information. Mm. Now, that creates the the possible contamination, though, if there's any telepathic leakage or subtle hints between the two of you. That is exactly true. Um, There could be telepathic overlay. That's one reason, though, why a good monitor, a well-trained monitor is so vitally important. Mm -hmm. Because, number one, a good monitor has to stay completely impartial facially, no facial expressions, no body language to impart information to the viewer. And so nevertheless, in a, in a good marriage, we do know how to read each other very well. But that, that can be both a benefit and a detriment in that there could be telepathic overlay. At the same time, Jim always knows when I'm on target and when I'm off target, even if he's completely blind to the target, simply by reading my body signals and my uh, the way my handwriting goes, my, the, the tone of my voice, the way my eyes are moving, he knows. So if we're doing a target in which he is as blind to the target as I am, he can still make notes and say, you know, page six is going to be really good information. I can tell she's really on target. And page 10, maybe you should ignore. She's definitely gotten off target here. You know, he can just tell from my body signals. So there's like so many levels of depth. The longer you do this work, the more nuances there are. And, and I suppose of some ability to control for problems like telepathic leakage that might, you know, less experienced person be more problematic. Yes, exactly. Jim is really, really good at keeping his face just unreadable. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we, we even joke and this is Jim happy. This is Jim sad. This is Jim angry, you know, because, because he's so good at, at not, he can, he can just keep himself completely expressionless. Mm-hmm. When I was working on that airplane target, at one point I said, something is failing. I, I made the statement, something is failing. And Jim said, move to the failing and describe. So the monitor's job, he has to make sure that he doesn't lead me to anything I haven't already said. For example, if you knew that there was something red at the target, you were the monitor, and you knew that I, I, I really needed to get to the red thing to give you the information you needed. If you said, uh, is there anything red at the target? You'd be horribly leading me, especially if I hadn't mentioned red. But if I say there's something red at the target, and you say, oh, move to the red and describe, that's perfectly fine, because mm-hmm. I mentioned it first. Yeah. So in this case, I said, something's failing. And Jim said, move to the failing and describe. And then I start like a good Italian, you know, I'm like, um, it's, it's like, the, and then, and there's these, <laughs> and so Jim says, could you sketch that? And I said, no, no, I can't sketch that. I, I don't, I'm not a very good artist. I, I, and I don't know anything about mechanical things. I can't sketch it. He said, uh, would you like to try? Could you just try to sketch it for me? So of course, 
you know, he's so sweet and he's asking me to try. So I start making these sketches. And meanwhile, he's completely just expressionless. And I'm making the sketches and I'm thinking, I'm boring him to death. I'm boring him to death. But in reality, he was super excited because I, what, he knew exactly what I was sketching. His father was a 1950s airplane aircraft mechanic and he knew exactly what part of the engine I was, I was sketching. Mm. And, uh, he didn't say a word though. And I had no idea if I was right or wrong. I was just out there trying to sketch what I was perceiving. And then after we finished the session, we were going out to dinner. And as we were heading out the door, I said, sorry, I know that was probably really boring, you know, for you to have to sit through. And he looked at me and said, that's the best session you've ever done. But I would have never known. I had absolutely mm -hmm. no idea that I was on target at all by his face. Well, stepping back for a moment, um, I know there are many details to talk about monitoring, but I would imagine that uh, half the time, probably, remote viewers end up monitoring themselves in the session. They do. And that's why I wrote the book on monitoring, because uh, and when I sent the book to Mel Riley, I just asked him to read through it and tell me if there was anything that I'd left out. And he did. He was wonderful in giving me some great advice and said, you need to talk about ERV monitoring in this. And I added a whole new section to the book because of his advice. ERV, which is? Extended remote viewing. Yeah. But, but um, when Mel read it, he wrote me back and he said, gosh, I wish we had had something like this when we were in the unit. It would have helped mm -hmm. us so much. And actually, I, I have to give a ton of credit to Jim because I don't, that monitoring book wouldn't even exist if it hadn't been for Jim in that my students one night said, in the mentoring club, could you and Jim talk about monitoring? So Jim came on and was my guest in the mentoring club and really talked about monitoring. And, and I was taking notes as he was talking because I was learning a lot just from the things he's learned from monitoring me all these years. And, uh, and then it eventually became a book. So it really should have Jim's name as a co-author just because it was his ideas, many of his ideas that went into that book and made it what it is. Mm -hmm. So the monitor can help direct the viewer uh, if the viewer is stuck. That's example. a big part of monitoring as well. Sometimes, uh, and, and usually, to be honest, the reason that most viewers find themselves stuck is because the conscious mind is trying to take over the session and they say, oh, don't say that. That's probably wrong. Don't write that down. Oh, how can it be both cold and hot? You know, all the logical mind just fights. And when that happens and a battle is ha happening internally, and that's when the viewer shuts down. So this, this battle that's going on causes the viewer to shut down and then the viewer just gets stuck. And in, in the viewer's mind, the viewer's not always aware what's exactly what's happening because it happens so fast, but all of a sudden they just kind of go, um, I'm not getting anything. I'm not getting anything. At that point, the monitor can cue with single words like colors, textures, temperatures, smells, sounds, tastes. Just really quickly saying words like that can prompt the viewer's subconscious mind to to mm -hmm. start spitting out information. We don't want to do it like color. And then the viewer goes, uh, red. We don't want to do it where it's a question that the viewer is answering. We want to just make it a prod that's spoken very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Colors, textures, temperatures, smell, sounds, taste. Uh. And that way it kind of gets the viewer going again. If that doesn't work, the monitor can also try moving the viewer. We always give a movement command in two parts. The first part is a command to the subconscious mind, asking it to do something the conscious mind can't do, like move up 500 feet. And then we end it with something to give the conscious mind something to do, like, and describe. 
mm-hmm. or describe what you hear, or describe what you smell. Um, I usually just say and describe because it's that way you're open to find whatever you want to find. So you can give them um, what we call a movement command or an action cue, like mentally slap the target. Sounds? Mentally clap your hands at the target. Mentally lick the target. <laughs> we had we had a hilarious situation where this young couple, they weren't they didn't know each other. They were strangers, but they both lived in California and they both came to take the course. And it was a really cute girl and a really cute guy. And I kind of wonder, gee, I wonder if they're going to get together, you know, at this class because they have 3 days together. And so he was monitoring her. I was having him monitor her on a session. And the photograph was this kind of heavy set kind of sweaty Middle Eastern man with a five o'clock shadow and a turban on his head. And he's sitting in the cab of an 18 wheeler truck. And so she's doing a good job of describing. And then the monitor, this young guy says, um, he's reading from the manual, um, mentally lick the target, um, taste. And she kind of goes, Ooh, you know, it's kind of salty. You know, she kind of reacted <laughs> a little negatively later when she saw the feedback photo, she looks at him and goes, you made me lick that guy. <laughs> and I thought, oh, buddy, you just lost your chances with her. <laughs> so the lesson in, in, in that is that you, you, you don't want to make the right. viewer do something that might turn out to be uncomfortable. Exactly. And also, you want to make sure as a monitor that whatever you're saying to the viewer is always a suggestion. We have a very strong rule called the viewer is in charge of the session. And so by that token, the viewer is always right. Let's say that you're monitoring me and I'm the viewer. And all of a sudden I go, you're leading me. And I just like attack you as the viewer. Mm -hmm. Your job as a monitor is to say, I'm so sorry. Even if you know you weren't leading me, your job would be to, oh, Lori, I'm sorry. I'll make a note of that and I'll make sure I don't do that again. Mm -hmm. But what you would note down is exactly where I was in the session, what page I was on, what I was talking about when that explosion occurred. Because it could be later after we're done with the session and the session is over, then you could say, let's take a look at what caused you to get upset with me. And let's look at the feedback. Is there anything about this target that could be upsetting you? Oh my gosh, that guy looks just like my ex-husband, you know, or Mm -hmm. something like that. It could be something that I was completely unaware of on a conscious level that caused me to get upset at you. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we have a rule that the viewer's always right during the session. That way no arguments ensue because an emotional argument will shut down the session. So the monitor's job is to always just stay very, very steady and stable um, to speak in kind of a quiet monotone and to offer suggestions like, would you like to move to page seven instead of turn the page or get a new page? Mm-hmm. You know, the, now when you talk about pages, I believe earlier you mentioned the right side of the page, the left side of the page. You have a very structured way. You and the monitor both know that structure. Yes. And the monitor can help the viewer stay in structure. Ingo Swan, when he developed controlled remote viewing, he had a big banner above his desk that said, sight be damned, structure is everything. So when I hear people say, oh, Ingo didn't believe in CRV, he created it, but he didn't believe in it. He thought it was BS or he didn't like it or whatever. Um, at the same time, I have been in Lynn Buchanan, my mentor's house, many times when Ingo would call and they would talk on the phone. And... I did not get the impression from any of those calls. He always had him on speaker. I never, I never got the impression that Ingo disliked CRV at all. 
Um, but I felt, I, I do feel that now we've developed it to such a point, to such a level of professionalism, that I think if Ingo could see what viewers nowadays are doing, he'd be very proud that he developed it. I see. So, the details of the structure, what you put on the right side of the page, what you put on the left side of the page. Uh, I know you also work with glyphs uh, or uh, icons. Oh, ideograms, yes. Ideograms. Very important part of the process. So, the monitor understands all of that. Yes. In fact, uh, to be a monitor, you really should be a remote viewer. And I think monitoring makes you a better remote viewer. Mm -hmm. um, and people say, oh, is, you know, is Jim a good remote viewer? Jim is an excellent remote viewer. How often does he remote view? Not very often nowadays. It's, it's like Linda Buchanan once said to me, Lynn's wife, she said, one remote viewer in the family is enough. <laughs> um, and so uh, Jim feels like his efforts are better focused on being a really good monitor than, than actually being a viewer. But mm -hmm. he's taken all the classes mm -hmm. and can definitely remote view. And he definitely understands the process that's going on when I'm remote viewing. And that's why he's so good at noticing if I'm getting on target, if I'm off target. Mm -hmm. And also if I'm getting into dangerous waters and maybe he needs to pull me back. One really fascinating story. Um, I was working on a kidnapping case, and I was I was connecting in the SI column, which Ingo called the EI column, of the phase four matrix. So again, this is all a written structure, and yeah. when you get into phase four, there are eight columns of information that once so we just have these blank columns that we put information into, depending on the type of information, and that gives our yeah. conscious mind a job to do, keeps it busy, so that it will stay out of the subconscious mind's way. So I was connecting with the subconscious mind of a guard who had who was guarding these kidnapped victims. And I encountered that there were many victims. I, my job was to try to locate one guy, but there were many victims and they were all in behind these locked doors. And so I was trying to connect with the subconscious of the guard. And I did. I found out a lot about this guard. He was actually a very nice guy with a family and all this. And so I was like, why, why are you kidnapping people? And instantly I had instant understanding of the, actual ideology of this mm -hmm. group that was kidnapping people. And he gave me the name. This is very rare, but I got the full name in Spanish of the organization that was kidnapping these people. I gave it to the investigators and they had never heard of the group and they investigated. And sure enough, this group existed in the area where the man was kidnapped. But the thing that amazed me was once I, once I connected with him and I understood the ideology, I literally looked at my monitor, Jim, and said, I think we might be on the wrong side of this thing. I think that, that I mean, th I understand why they're kidnapping you people. You were developing sympathy. I was for developing them. sympathy because suddenly I understood it the way he understood it. We had really connected mentally. Mm -hmm. And Jim looked at me as a wise monitor and very gently said, Does someone need to detox? And I went, Oh my gosh. And I suddenly realized what, you know, what I had just said. Like I'm sympathizing with the kidnappers. Um, and so that is another thing that a monitor is supposed to do is to look out for things like that and to suggest moments in which we might need to do what we refer to as an in session detox, where we literally stop right there and we separate our lives from the lives of whoever we might be viewing. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's a real separation thing where mm, the room I'm in, the walls are black. Where the, where the target person is, 
The walls are yellow, you know, and we just want to really separate out our lives from their lives when there's been a conjoining in some way. Mm. And I know uh, Jim also is able to pay attention to subtle muscle cues that uh, because he knows you so well, but he's able to communicate with you at a subconscious level. Yes, and, exactly. As well. Now, that would be a very advanced type of monitoring, <laughs> probably not something a beginner should even endeavor to do. Well, when I was, you know, Lynn taught us about this, this science called micro movements when I, in our very first basic class. And mm-hmm. I was attending at that time with my former husband, Albert, who's also a wonderful remote viewer, very nice guy. And Albert, um, I, so Lynn taught us what micro movements were, and micro movements, as you mentioned, are very subtle motions that the body makes um, that the monitor can notice and and can actually respond to subconsciously. So Albert and I immediately developed a system that he's still to this day not aware of. So if he's watching, he's going to learn about it now. <laughs> but um, where he every time he got on target, really getting the target, he would tip his head to the side like this. And so I started noticing that because I was choosing the targets for him. So I started noticing, oh, as soon as Albert gets on target, he tips his head to the side. So I started making a note of it. But then what I started doing was every time he would tip his head to the side, I would scratch the side of my nose. So he would tip his head and I would go like this. And and to this day, he doesn't know that this, Mm -hmm. this was happening. But the reason I was doing it was Lynn had taught me that this was like a subconscious way of, of, of saying to Albert's subconscious, thank you. I saw that. Uh Just kind of acknowledging (laughs) it. And then, and then, uh, so then it became really dependable because I Mm -hmm. kind of trained it into him by always rewarding him with the little scratch on the nose. It became very dependable where every time he Uh got on target, he could tip his head. And the way that that becomes very helpful is if let's say we were later working on a missing child case. Albert has no idea where the missing child is and neither do I, right? So even if I'm monitoring him and I see the signal, I can write down, oh, pay attention to what Albert wrote on page seven because he tipped his head to the Uh side and gave me his signal that he's on target. Now, I know at one point you told me a story about how his head was tipped and he made a drawing of the target that was also uh, perpendicular to where it should have been. Yes. Now, this was, granted, this was, I think, the very first target he ever worked. Mm. And we call that a sight orientation problem. Mm -hmm. And so his target... He drew it as a sideways thing. He said, there's this elongated thing that comes out like this, and then there's something cold and wet that's vertical, and then it kind of goes like tapers off, and then there's a round thing like a roller coaster wrapped around it. This was his very first target. And it turned out to be a bottle of champagne in an ice bucket on a spiral stand. Mm-hmm. So he had drawn it sideways, but it was actually 90 <laughs> degrees off. And uh, and he did tip his head to the mm-hmm. side as he was getting the information. So what he had to teach himself to do was as soon as he saw a picture in his mind, he had to learn to, chain, to turn it to the right 90 mm-hmm. degrees, and then he would be very accurate. Well, one of the uh, lessons I'm learning from this conversation is that uh, there are hundreds of nuances that one, uh, when you get to the level of professional functioning, you, like in most other professions, you become aware of. It's true. It, and it never stops. The learning never stops. It's just layers of understanding because we're exploring consciousness, which is really the final frontier. It's probably the thing we understand the least mm-hmm. of, of, in my opinion, of of all the different things. If we're talking about outer space or the bottom of the ocean, 
consciousness is right up there. <laughs> and, and remote viewing is really quite a window into the functioning of consciousness at, at uh, some of the outer limits. It's so true. It is, and it is the most amazing self-discovery tool. And by working with a monitor who's able to objectively watch you, you can learn so much about yourself just from the monitor's observations even. Mm. You know, so it's a wonderful, wonderful self-discovery tool. Well, Laurie Williams, once again, a delightful conversation, very educational. I'm pleased to be able to share this with our viewers. Thank you so much for being with thank me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.